Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Frank Gomez, and this is All Things STEM. It is a pleasure to be chatting today with Dr. Tina Chuk, Assistant Professor of Elementary Science Education at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Tina has extensive experience examining teacher shortages in the areas of special education and bilingual education. She examines how language is used to construct race and how ideas of race influence language and language use in artificial intelligence technologies that are used in a classroom and its possible impacts. For most of Tina's career, she has focused on issues that include the development of culturally and linguistically diverse learners in STEM settings. She has also focused on the struggles, assets, and possibilities of teachers of color across the pipeline. Today, we will discuss these issues and her work that aims to transform institutions toward more equitable and just learning spaces. Hi, Tina. Welcome. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you for having me here today. Good. It's great to have you on the show. Tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming a, an elementary science education professor. You know, what, what got you into this gig, Need for Better Words, and uh, you know, what interested you into, uh, into getting into this space? So I think my journey has been sort of very windy, but I think at the core is my love for teaching and learning. So um, I excelled in school and I loved learning. And that's partly due to both my parents and also the teachers that I was in schools much of my life. And so I just happened to have great science teachers who believed in me. And I went through school and I, I loved um, teaching about science in after school settings. And I became a teacher of both science and literacy. And so from there, I continued sort of learning about science education. I also do a little bit of math ed. And this position, once I got my doctorate degree at, from Stanford, um, this position at Cal Poly opened up, really focused on elementary science teaching. And I've always wanted to come back to the public schools and serve, you know, as a public school educator in this now new role as a teacher educator. So right now my position is um, at Cal Poly, slow San Luis Obispo, um, elementary science teacher education. Well, certainly the CSUs uh, exemplify what we can define as a public education. Huh? No yes. kidding, huh? Yes, <laughs> definitely. So, you know, your work is very diverse, you know, after looking through uh, certainly your website and, you know, some of your papers, you're doing a, a little bit of, uh, I guess, a lot of a bunch of things. What uh, intrigued me was your uh, tier program, your project, uh, focusing on teacher shortages. And certainly that's been not only in the news of late, but is kind of a systemic problem that has been around us for, uh, for a number of years, and particularly in the areas of STEM. Talk a little bit about your work and how this program in particular is making a difference. So the TIER work stands for Teaching for Inclusivity, Equity, and Residency program for our teachers that are interested in special education and bilingual education. And for us here in um, San Luis Obispo County, the, the need is really for Spanish teachers um, and English. So sort of bilingual in both English and Spanish. And really sort of stepping a little bit back, I think about my work as a science teacher educator and what I've seen and my own personal and professional trajectory is that there's many points along the pathway and journey into science that students of color, students who have been marginalized, get pushed and edged out. And so, and that begins very early. 
And so even at elementary schools, we ask students to draw a picture of who they think a scientist is. And we get a lot of images of white male lab coat. And a lot of students don't draw themselves. And you ask them why. And already at kinder first, second grade, they have this image of who a scientist is or who a scientist can be. So I think for us, it's to have more, number one, a diverse teaching workforce at the elementary and the middle and high school, that students see that they can be many things. There's many different types of lived experiences and that science gets prioritized in the classroom. And why also that's important is um, it goes back to the earlier question on, you know, how did I get here and what is my journey? And I've been thinking a lot about sort of social justice and science in particular in terms of what are the pressing issues now and how do we get those ideas earlier in our young people's minds because they're our future. So issues like climate justice, environmental justice, local issues that are happening here. Um, They're really conversations about wind energy, Diablo Canyon, which is the nuclear power plant that's closing, and then water rights because we're in the middle of a drought. Who owns water and water justice issues? And then also right now um, across all our minds is health justice, especially with um, COVID. So I think the TIER program really thinks about diversifying and making sure that teacher workforce for students with um, special needs and emergent bilinguals and emergent multilingual students are included in the classroom, that they have instructors who can empower them, that they can also be successful in whatever career trajectories that they wish to be, whether it be science or in STEM fields or other professions. So a lot of times I think students just exit out the system because of a lot of the structural issues that are in place. You know, certainly COVID has brought to the forefront a lot of those systemic problems that for many you know, decades, hundreds of years, in fact, that have been swept under the rug that we in, in the United States and the world have not wanted to deal with. But looking at the glass, you know, half empty or, or half full, as I say, or three quarters full, I look at it also as, you know, now we have an opportunity to try to reexamine how we have all been living and living with each other, and uh, what changes can we make uh, going forward in how we interact, how we engage, how we work with, how we live with uh, those that may or may not look like us. So, you know, with with this in mind, and, and you've kind of alluded to this, how can we address the strengths and needs of K through 12 emergent bilinguals and students with disabilities? What are some of the advantages in in addressing these, you know, what are the outcomes and how does it help the nation? Let's just look at the United States. Why should people who are not emergent bilinguals and disabled, you know, who may have been or have students with disabilities, what is in it for them? Why should they, you know, jump on the, the bandwagon? Um, you know, kind of look at it that way because, you know, we, we don't work, we don't live in a vacuum. So how is it that we can get more people to, to support uh, what is needed for these people of need? 
I think that's a great question. So for me, I think about science, innovations, and engineering. And I think about that we are all interconnected in that what the knowledge that we create as a society, that the difference of opinions and ideas and knowledges and lived experience make those innovations more rich, more inclusive, more just. Everyone benefits when we consider more diverse populations. So um, I think what's been happening is that those who make it through a very challenging sort of STEM education pipeline into higher ed spaces, into PhDs and become doctors and engineers, that system is skewed towards some students and it leaves out others. So I think what happens at the end is those who are the decision-making in terms of how we design something, how we think about innovations and knowledge, um, leave certain big bats of populations out simply because they didn't get their feet into the door. And so I think that's a disservice, not only to sort of the dominant, more normal or um, the broader population, but it's, it really, it leaves out and it creates greater inequities, which then we have to invest potentially future resources so that we sort of, everyone can be successful. So I always think about, you know, it's not about our individual outcomes in terms of our learning in our classrooms and our schools, but it's about our collective. How do we together focus on our strengths and what we bring to the table and how those solutions are ultimately better. There's a lot of research in the business world where if you have diverse teams, the process is harder because you're coming in with different perspectives and especially lived experiences, but the solutions are more rich and um, more powerful than those who ultimately are similar and have overlapping lived experiences, educational and training. So I, I really do believe that the more voices and more diversity of voices and knowledges that we have at the table, the richer that experience will be in terms of the outcomes. The processes will be difficult because we're sort of learning about what we each know, and it may be different from us. So I always value colleagues who, are, who have different educational training, different perspective. That's why I work in a lot of sort of interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary collaborations, because it pushes my thinking. We have a shared goal and the human enterprise is very complex. And to look at it through just my narrow lens of science education and my training is very limiting. So if I can have an anthropologist, if I could have a data scientist, if I could have a sociologist, if I could have an engineer, an MD to all sit at the table and figure out how to solve this problem together, it is so much more powerful than me sitting together with just my people to come up with a solution that fits a more narrow need. Yeah, certainly. And I say this uh, just in my own space, just working with a bunch of chemists, for example, may not solve the problem that we're trying to solve. Sometimes, you know, jokingly, it can be kind of boring too, okay? Uh, it's always good to work with people uh, with diverse interests who have expertise in educational areas that um, I know either a little bit about or none, nothing about, and certainly that are outside of STEM because, you know, it's great to be surrounded by people that are in STEM, but 
that is uh, it's limiting to me uh, as a person. And then it limits me as a teacher uh, and in my research, because it uh, it's good to have people that have a, whose eyes look at things uh, through different through different filters. You are quite passionate about uh, finding solutions to issues that impact uh, teachers of color. And in fact, you have a taught a class in developing uh, teachers of color. Tell us a little bit about this work and uh, the curriculum and what type of impact it has had on students. So this work was originally funded through a U.S. Department of Ed teacher quality partnership grant that Dr. Megan Geis, one of my colleagues in the English department, also um, School of Ed affiliate, launched. And she um, was awarded a multi-million dollar grant in 2018. And part of that work is really increased the diversity of um, Cal Poly, the teacher ed program. So we are situated at a predominantly white campus. We're least racially diverse compared to the 22 other campuses. And um, so, and I think we want to do better. And part of that is making sure our coursework, which is an example of policies that are in place that signals to students that we see you and we see your experiences and we, there's research around the issues that you've been thinking about or pondering, or you may not even know. And we want to sort of pull all that together and really center the lives of students of color who are interested in teaching, have thought about maybe teaching or, you know, have been maybe encouraged or nudged by one of us as instructors or staff members or, you know, being like, oh, you'd be a great teacher. So what happens is that for a lot of students of color, they, they don't get the nudge that um, a lot of our white, white students get in terms of you should be a teacher that sort of nudge and encouragement either doesn't come or comes a lot later in life. And because much of their K-12 experiences, a lot of times haven't been the most welcoming. Some of our teacher, student, or aspiring teachers of color, they, they come to the space in more resistance in that they want to be teachers because they don't want the, the negative experiences that they've encountered to be repeated for future students who are just like them. So their story of how they enter teaching is radically different from just in interviewing some of my student teachers who are white, where they come into the teaching profession because they have had relatives who are in the profession, their mom, their grandmother, their aunt. Um, they have teachers who've told them from kindergarten. They've had teachers who look just like them, you know, the teaching profession, especially at the elementary level, is predominantly white female. And that statistic hasn't shifted much. And in California, the statistic is still pretty stark. 61% um, of teachers in the workforce in California are white, while white students only compose of 22% of the student population. So you already see this, this proportionality there. And Hispanic teachers, Latinx teachers, is about one in five whereas they are 55, 56% of the student population in demographic of K-12. So you already see there's sort of, you have students who they see white teachers all around them. They see that and they see like, that's possible, but that's not always the case with a lot of my students of color. And I ask them, when is the first instance where you've had a teacher who reflected your racial identity? For my white students, that is typically early, in elementary, sometimes preschool, 
And for my students of color, that ranges and it's typically later in life, if at all. So even for me, I didn't have a Chinese instructor until I was in deep into my college years. And that was one. And then I had another, you know, Asian, you know, educator who, and that's just one in my doctoral studies. So I have had, I've had two in my entire K, you know, 16 plus career in teaching. And even here at the school that I'm the only, you know, Asian woman, Chinese woman in my, you know, school and very handful at, you know, my college level. So I think it speaks a lot in terms of just representation, but it's not just about representation. It's about the lived experiences. What is it like to be a person of color in America going through schooling? So that's a long-winded answer to sort of this course. And it, this course really centers on, you know, those experiences that students of color have, and then have them realize that it, it's not isolated. It is a pattern and that is deliberate and systematic. It's this exclusion of, of teachers of color in K-12 education. Why is that happening? What we can do about it? So then recentering. So like, how do we not only resist against this dominant narrative, but thrive? How do we create our own stories so that we can have joyful and thriving narratives and support our students of color so that it's not simply a deficit narrative that we've been fed, like that these students, these populations of students need this. They don't have that. And then flip that narrative. So it's like, no, they have these strengths that they just don't happen to have be captured by GPA or test scores and these metrics that these others, you know, these powers that be have determined that are the metrics of success. So I think who decides what great students are and then who decides what not great students are. So there's a lot of power dynamics that are at play and then really having students question you know, the narratives that they've been fed so that they feel more empowered, that it's not like, am I losing my mind? Like that happened. And why is that happening? And it's like, it's deliberate. It's by design. So school is by design, racist structures that are sort of mirrors and reflections of society. So part of it's, you know, getting at the core of what the problem is and thinking about policy implications, practices that we can do to slowly start dismantling the system. So you made me think when you talked about metrics, how and maybe maybe this is you know a little difficult to answer here. If our metrics are you know, wrong on how we are looking at, uh, let's just take one example. You know what are our metrics appropriate for how? we gauge the recruitment of faculty. Are our metrics wrong in terms of how we gauge if a student enters an undergraduate engineering program, for example, in that we're really just looking at the surface of a resume, a you know, um, you know whatever their, their, their grades, their what used to be SAT, their GRE scores, what have you, and that we're really not getting into the weeds of what the potential of this student or this potential faculty member is, there's great harm that can be done in not even looking at this potential applicant for a job or a position 
in a college, for example. So, you know, I kind of see the same thing in 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 students who may want to strive to be a teacher in that from the onset, they if they're not seeing people that are a mirror of them, then they get this opinion that, you know, I'm not good enough. There's not many people that look like me that are in there. So they're not going to strive to do that. So, and maybe you don't have an answer to this, but how is it that we can reimagine, reinvent these, this, how we look at applicants or how we gauge if somebody is, is worthy of being put into a program or if they're worthy to be a faculty member or, or, or a dean or a president or, or whatever? I think I was just having a conversation with my student over lunch, um, who's a student teacher, comes from Santa Maria, probably Latinx community. And he was sharing with me for all of our student teachers, they have to pass this test, this portfolio called EdTPA, Education TPA. There's some acronym and it, it means something. But any student teacher in California and also nationwide are familiar with it. And he was asking me, like, what is the purpose of that? You know, it's it's costly. It is time intensive. It is very prescriptive in what they're looking for. Yet, you know, we've been giving him feedback, you know, weekly in terms of the coursework. He's in the field. He has a cooperating teacher and a mentor teacher who observes him in teaching. We get feedback from students. So I would say, you know, this this test, this portfolio that he has to create is one metric of many different data points. And I think sometimes we overscore or overvalue, you know, SAT or GRE or GPA because it's easier. It's a shortcut when we have lots of people to vet. And so it becomes this funneling mechanism, this cutoff. And I think for me, because I do a bit of critical scholarship, I always think about who decides what that cutoff is and who's at that cutoff, right? Like, what is the rule that says you are in and then you are out? Because that's the defining marker. Who gets to decide that? What is that criteria? And is that criteria problematic, right? And if so, how is it problematic? How is it exclusionary? And so, in what ways can we think about all those metrics? And I have, you know, arguments with my team here, really thinking about admissions, because I think, you know, admissions is this gatekeeper in higher ed at the undergraduate level. And also because we run a teacher ed program at the post-bac level, who we admit, we are the gatekeepers. I am sitting in a place where we admit students when we have a certain number of seats, we have too many applicants. Right. So I would love to admit all of them, but at some point we have to sort of decide who do we leave behind. And so I think, you know, we we have to roll our sleeves and do the hard work of what is the holistic package and what is it that we value that these students bring into the community? What may be some things that are unwritten, you know, in terms of the criteria that, you know, I think criteria themselves feel very objective, but that is a, in some ways a very white supremacist tool of like, if you make, if you meet these check boxes that a certain committee has decided or have said, this is what was done in the last search that is replicating 
historic, you know, inequities, right? So I always push, you know, when we're thinking about criteria for hiring and so forth to really question, like, how are these criteria that are required, you know, um, we sort of, in a way, exclusionary, who might not apply simply because this statement of these required qualities are there. And we know from research, women tend to not apply to positions if they don't meet all the checklists. You know, people of color also, again, if they don't meet all the checklists, they also exclude themselves from even applying. We know white males overestimate and they overapply even when they don't meet the checklist. So you have this skewed pool of people who overcompensate, you know, they apply even though they don't meet the criteria. And then you're inadvertently excluding those who may meet the qualifications, but may not meet one, but they could probably, you know, meet part of it, but would be a great candidate. So I think it's for us really revisiting, like how are, and it's hard, it's hard work, especially if you've been um, in the community and present. So I'm new. So I feel like this is my opportunity where like, I didn't develop that criteria. So I, I don't accept things as is. You know, I question like, well, why do we have that policy? Why is, why are these criteria there? It's just because it was there before doesn't mean it should be there now because we have to think the future. So I try to, you know, think about the conversations we should have is not about preservation of the past, but about where do we want to go into the future? What kind of society will we want to be? What kind of communities we want to bring in? What kind of students and, you know, partnerships and, you know, how do we want to see that future? And in conversations with my colleagues, like how do we build a team so that we can serve our K-12 students better? What, what are their needs that we're not doing right now? And then how do we think about hiring to meet that need downstream? So it's really getting at the core of like, who is that individual that has many different complexities to them that have the potential to meet that need as a team member to do the work in teacher education versus this strict criteria of checklists, which feels very objective, but we know human beings are messy, complex and complicated beings and um, strengths that they, that aren't acknowledged in academia don't make it right. They, they don't get acknowledged. So we have, um, yeah. So I think, you know, what is the criteria that it's like, it's the, it's the rule keeping and the gatekeeping mechanisms that allow people to come in and what we signal in terms of you are not, you know, you don't get in this very elite club called higher ed or, you know, school like AP courses or, you know, career tech education. So there's all these like people decide for you versus you deciding yourself where you want to be and not letting those doors close. You remind me of uh, an experience I had in graduate school when I was TAing general chemistry course. I was TAing and I'll leave the faculty's name. He's, he's passed away. Uh, he actually worked uh, as a grad student on the, uh, the atomic bomb, you know, ex experiments. Okay. And in Chicago, but he was teaching general chemistry and he was an old, old guy at the time. And he brought us in, there were four TAs and we had to give the final grades for a class of 300 students. 
And if you recall the old Epson printers, I'm older than you, but the way they used to print, they used to go eh, 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 like that. And it's kind of like a little turnstile. It was like rolled up and he rolled it onto the floor. And he just arbitrarily, he looked at on all the names with all the points of the students were there. He just walked over it. And this was probably like 20 feet long. He just arbitrarily looked at the, the whole wide, long roll. And he said, at this point and above is an A. At this point of above is a B, C, D, and F. And he turned to us and said, if do you have any students in your classes that are like on the on the cusp of either way, if you want to move them up or down, let me know. Okay. And that was his criteria on how uh, on his metrics of grading for the class. I mean, it ended up being some sort of bell-shaped curve, but to him it was to him it was a blind test. That that was it, okay. And it didn't matter who and what the names were of those people but that was it it's like it, 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 and it was it was just really really strange that he did that and we had to look down deeply to find the names of our students and you know oh yes please move them up or oh, no 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 just 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 move them down okay okay it was it was kind of weird um kind of a story when you talk about metrics I mean, that's, that was a bad metric, okay, in terms of grading, in terms of grading that class. You're an author of an article, uh, Can AI Be Racist? Well, there's certainly been a lot of books over the past few years on the problems with uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, color evasiveness and the application of ML to science assessments. Tell us a little bit about the article, your motivation, and, and some of your findings. So. During my graduate school years at Stanford, I was on this team developing science assessments around argumentation from evidence, which is a key practice in the next generation science standards. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work around explanations and argument, and much of my work is around language and literacies and thinking about language and how it shows up in science in many different ways. So language in sort of very comprehensive and expansive ways, not just in words, but by modeling, movement, gestures, you know, um, thinking beyond words, but words are super important because they represent meaning and ideas and it's how people make sense. We assign meaning to words. And so assessments is a sort of, I would say it's a term, especially if they're summative and if they're high stakes have, it's triggering. So I, you know, when I talk to my student teachers about assessments or like they tense up because they've had this sort of generally negative experience. One of my assess, like who's you know, I think we have this, it, maybe it's this American schooling of sorting. We want to sort students and sort what they know in this pile, the A's, the B's, the beginner readers, the, the growing readers, the developing, the, the need support. So we have this constant, while I think that's fine, it's the goal is to grow everyone to move them along sort of this developmental continuum in whatever discipline so that they they can do the work in the discipline and and so forth but i think i was on a science assessment team where we we're developing science assessments focusing on 
measuring how students were making arguments from evidence in middle schools. And this was in monolingual English. And I say monolingual English purposely because our schooling in K-12 here in the U.S. is predominantly in English. It doesn't have to be. There's There's been a time in California where bilingual was embraced and there were certain propositions that really cut and narrowed down that field. And now there's a resurgence of bilingual education, which is amazing. So I'm sort of, there's a lot of politics involved, but we were really thinking about how students were responding in, in these tasks or see these science questions around argumentation from evidence and making arguments and making claims and counter arguments. And what I noticed in my monolingual English speaking team, and I think I was the one of two sort of bilingual speakers. So I speak Chinese and English, and I know a little bit of Spanish. Um, and I had another postdoc on the team who was also bilingual English and Spanish. So we were able to provide sort of a different perspective in how students can show their thinking. Because what happens is in these monolingual science assessments, our bilingual students are those who are beginning to learn English, but may have great science fluency or just fluency in Spanish, they might know a science concept, but not be able to express it in the English or in the academic English that we sort of put these boxes in. So they may be able to draw it, gesture it, and explain it in Spanish, but none of that counts, none of it, because our box is pretty narrow in terms of what's acceptable, right? Or like they need to use these terms in English, this type of syntax, this type of order, because argumentation is a very syntactically rich sort of um, rhetorical, and oftentimes dialogic if you're with multiple folks. Um, but it, it gets the richness of the other languages or even translanguaging where if students are using Spanish and English, it gets lost and it doesn't get captured. So I was really concerned in that we were developing a tool and then there was another team really focused on the machine learning algorithms. And all machine learning is, it's you're looking for patterns and within these patterns, you're creating some type of algorithm or some steps that you're feeding some data in and you're, the, the system is learning sort of what's happening, what are some patterns that are happening over and over again. And the larger the data set, the more stable you know, the system can churn out in terms of these outputs and these predictions. So we were making these predictions of this student will score a three, a level three, a level two, or a level one. So I think, um, so in terms of assessments, we, you know, it, it has even though this was a pilot project and in very nascent stages, I could see that already it was problematic, right? It didn't include students of, with special needs. So students with disabilities, they were excluded. Mostly because they were in the minority, right? The data points are so few. So it's this sort of, you know, the chicken or the egg, right? It's like, there's so few of them, so we can't include them. And so we don't have enough data. So it's like, then they get excluded. So. I'm like, well, you still need to include them and build that into the model of scoring. Um, immersion bilinguals, again, this was a monolingual English. And the, you know, we would find reasons to basically exclude the richness of language or anything that felt like outliers, right? We're like, we want a clean data set. Let's, let's clean up this messiness 
right? Let's get rid of these singular outliers. And so that we have a clean data set that makes sense um, when we run the data. And then we'll look at exceptions, but they just become these exceptions. And, but it was, I found the process to be a bit jarring because these are, these algorithms are these black boxes that you don't quite know what's happening. You're just feeding data, making adjustments over time. And then there's some output that's this predictive output of this student scored X, like level one, two, or three, or however you want to score. And I just felt like there's something happening. And, and I think for me, you know, when you talk about students' language, it's interconnected with race and identity. So it's sort of, in some ways, code. You don't have to talk about race, but if you talk about language. So I've talked about emergent bilinguals, likely they're not white, right? So it's sort of like in US, in California, language and race are intimately intertwined. You really can't talk to, about one without talking about the other. And so I wrote this article mostly because I think it needed to be said. And, you know, I had to claw my way into this space to stay in it because my views were definitely in the minority. Um, I think it was contentious because they didn't see the value that I was bringing in terms of, well, we have to, like when we draw the line of who gets the three versus who gets the two, we are deciding what's acceptable. And these have, if these become part of state assessments, which, you know, states, you know, ETS is clamoring to like buy this product up and then it becomes part of some state testing mechanism, which have even further implications in terms of resource allocation, opportunities for our students and these labels, right? I think it's these assessments have these negative consequences of labeling our students over time again and again, and it further marginalizes what they know and can do. So for me, it's really centering about how do we see all of our students' linguistic assets, right? And then how do we think about that in the context of science learning and science assessment and how we score so that they are included and not excluded. So that's what the paper was really about, really thinking about how do we make these data sets transparent so that others can see like, these are the people we left. These are the scores we left out. And this is the rationale. And here's the data set that we use to train and who is in that data set, the racial identities, the demographic gender language, you know, demographics, and then really thinking about, you know, science is, it's, the language of science is hard because we make it hard. We make it hard so that we leave people out. So like the, why the textbooks are written in a certain way is so that fewer people can get access to it. And so we can do things differently and be more inclusive, but I think there's historical precedence as to, you know, there's a dominant space where it's it's been exclusionary. And part of my work is really to disrupt that, be like, stop being so exclusionary. We need to include more. And our work is actually better for it, even though it will be more challenging, but our outcomes are better. Well, uh, bilinguals, teachers of color, AIML, let's get into another uh, hot button topic, uh, data for ethics and social justice, another project you're involved in. And um, how can data sciences, at least in reference to this project, empower historically marginalized communities? And what, uh, 
you know, tell us a little bit about your project. So this was um, a campus research strategic initiative that Cal Poly funded. And I was fortunate enough to be part of this very interdisciplinary team. So I was with computer scientists, you know, biologists, economists who do work with big data sets. And, and I you know, see myself as a social scientist and also in the field of education. So I was a bit of a newbie in this group. And it's data science for all and for good. So, and the committee's name is actually data for ethics and social justice. And what I think is novel about this work is not, is that it's not just about ethics, which I think has this way of mitigating harm, right? Let's do no, do no harm, but the social justice aspect really puts us in a space where we know we can do good. I think it's acknowledging that some of our systems in society are racist, are sexist, are patriarchal, you know, are, are ableist. And we know that is true. That that is true. Therefore, the work we need to do has to be better than that, right? How do we promote good and promote more socially just systems in the work we do around data sciences? So that I think data for all and that that motto is really thinking about who is all and really be inclusive, right? Who are the people who are then in the space of decision-making throughout the research process, right? Um, does it involve communities? Who's your research team? Who's on your advisory board? And then data for good is really thinking about as you're conceptualizing your research, what, you know, what might those outcomes be in terms of its impact on people, and who are those people and communities? And really deliberately thinking through like, how might this cause harm, right? And I think there's a tension of, you know, for basic science research or basic researchers who focus on one part and they're less on the application part. I've had conversations with my colleagues. They're like, that's not my responsibility. I'm classic example is drone technology, right? The folks who develop drone technology probably thought they, they may have not thought about the implications it has for war, right? That it it can harm communities that they never thought in their design of a drone that it would have on innocent people in civilians and impact, right? But so I think it's it's having those conversations and and also thinking about research and like if it does harm, like we we shouldn't we might not we should not do it because the harm constantly lands on those who are invisible or made visible, and they further marginalize those populations, which we know have not benefited from science because simply they've not been included. So I think we really think about how do we create a toolkit of questions that research teams can ask throughout the process from the inception of proposals to um, the work they're doing once their work is funded to after the grant is done or the project is done, what might be, you know, reflecting on that work? How could they have done things differently? So it's not necessarily a checklist, but it's, it's like a protocol for us to think about research and be more connected to it so that we're not just simply removed from it and that we have no relationship to the knowledge we create because that knowledge gets taken up and then used and apply. And, you know, I think examples are facial recognition that have, you know, just recently IRS was talking about using facial recognition to, you know, confirm 
sort of accounts. And there was like, and then, you know, we have different countries using that to track the populations in their own country. So there's a lot of privacy issues and this is, you know, super emerging. And, you know, we see these larger tech companies really harness that power. And, and we know that there are great harms that are being made when there, there's a lack of transparency, when people who are in decision-making spaces don't think about how their work negatively impacts communities that aren't simply, they're not at the table. So that, that was the intent of the work, um, a collaboration with Cal Poly colleagues. Great. Uh, you know, we could certainly go on and on all day with uh, any one of these areas uh, that we spoke on. But uh, unfortunately, we don't have much time. I do have a very, very difficult question for you. Okay. Uh, if you could turn back the hands of time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell her? It's a tough question. I mean, I, I don't think... I've always been someone who've persevered and believe in solutions and that if I want something to happen for the good of the people I care about, there's a way. Sometimes it'll just take longer. I just, you know, I'm very persistent. I didn't get to where I am today without having a lot of doors close on me and finding other ways. And I think, um, and I see sort of my energies reflected in a lot of my students of color who, who share with me, a lot of times they're not seen and that, you know, they, but they find their own solutions. They create community that feels inclusive. And that's what I've also learned that my pathway is not solo or singular and my experiences aren't singular. They're actually part of this larger pattern that is by design um, that excludes certain people from certain spaces of privilege and power. And that I know that when I have those privileges and power, it is my duty to make sure I bring up more people around me, that they can come up without the barriers that I, you know, were encountered, especially in the field of STEM education, science. Um, so I think that's really important to know that, to not give up and to find community in people who shared similar lived experiences. That way you can, you know, lean on each other and come up with those creative solutions that haven't been thought of. And it's really about, you know, imagining this new future. So I think graduate school, especially um, taught me that there are no boundaries, right? All those boundaries are artificial. We decide that. So we can decide those new boundaries. We can build that bigger umbrella so everyone's included. No one gets to decide that. We get to decide that. So I think knowing that some of the rules, the criteria, the assessments, all those things we have in place that create your in versus your out. They're socially constructed. Someone, people decided that. And to really question all those as we move through, you know, and, and not accept it as is, that that's unchangeable. So I'm hopeful. So I think for my 18-year-old self, just to continue and, you know, not give up. I've, I've been very fortunate and privileged to 
have this post here, but that journey wasn't straight um, or easy, but I'm, I'm very lucky to be here working with amazing student teachers here at Cal Poly. Well, that's all for today's episode of All Things STEM. Thank you for listening. And many thanks to Dr. Tienschuk for joining me today. Join us again next time. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Simplecast, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you may listen to your podcast. Until next time.